Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We're finishing up that chapter on verse 33. Luke 5, beginning at verse 33. Hear God's word. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. And the grass withers, flowers fade. This very good word endures forever. Thanks be to God. So when I read this little account, I can't help but think of C.S. Lewis's testimony. And so he was a committed atheist for a number of years. Kind of his mantra was no interference. My posture is whatever's out there, my soul is my own. At the same time, throughout his life, he knew he was on this quest for what he would refer to as joy. This ache, this longing, this desire for fulfillment, for awe, for wonder. You know that feeling. And so he'd read a good book and be swept away with the mystery and wonder, but then he'd realize joy wasn't in the story itself or his encounter with it. He'd walk in the mountains and the beauty of the woods and the rocks would, would stir his emotions, but he'd also discern at that moment that joy wasn't in the mountains nor in his feelings about them. He'd listen to some lovely music and be deeply moved. But again, he'd perceive that joy wasn't the music itself or his sensation on him. He'd eat some delicious food and drink some rich wine and be just overwhelmed. But at the same time, he'd register joy wasn't found in the taste itself or in his experience of it. It was like the minute he'd focus on what was happening and how it affected him, like the moment was lost. It just escaped his reach. You've been there. So finally it dawned on him through a number of other events too, but that all these occurrences, as he said it, were merely the mental track left by the passage of joy. Not the wave itself, but the wave's imprint on the sand. All of them soon honestly confessed themselves to be inadequate. All said in the last resort, it's not I. I'm only a reminder. Look, look, what do I remind you of? 
And he says at that moment, God moved in on him and just showed up in his life and said, I am the Lord. I am who I am. And really, I am joy himself. Well, this is how I viewed Jesus here, feasting in Levi's house. That's what we've just looked at. And now explaining himself to those who've gotten confused by it, I'm the one you've been looking for. I am joy himself. And so there's this observation made right on the heels, the way Luke records it, right on the heels of that party at Levi's house. The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And we can't be sure who the they are. Matthew specifies as the disciples of John. Makes it a little more sincere to me. Mark identifies it as the people. They're just confused. Luke probably means people too. Yet, I mean, it probably includes the disciples and the Pharisees too, but the fact that he records it so closely and there's that ambiguity with the they and that he repeats eat and drink just as at Levi's house he was eating and drinking makes you think that it's the Pharisees speaking. And in any event, it makes the observation a sharp criticism of Jesus. Like, why do you feast while John's and the Pharisees' disciples fast? What kind of spiritual leader are you? That's the tone of it. And so fasting was important, spiritual discipline for Israel during this time. In God's law, he only specified one fast day. You remember that fast day was? It was the day of atonement, the day to afflict yourself to look at your sin, grieve your sin, and look at the scapegoat. However, later, Zechariah relates four approved examples of fasting to grieve the destruction of Jerusalem. As a fast to grieve the destruction of Jerusalem, to, to mourn sin, to lament that tragedy, to express desperation for God's deliverance. A number of approved examples in the Old Testament that way. Fasting accompanied prayer. It was an aid to prayer. It intensified repentance and the need for rescue. So in Jesus' day, John's disciples fasted regularly. And it makes sense because the focal point of John's ministry was preparation for the Redeemer. It's that we're sinners, we're undone, we need a Redeemer. Fasting was important for them. The Pharisees, for a number of years, had practiced regular fastings. They took it to the highest level. Mondays and Thursdays they fasted. I mean, imagine, commendable. They fasted to grieve Israel's continued oppression and to intercede for God to restore them, kind of ironically here, through the Messiah. So again, any spiritual leader worth his salt would be known by regular fasting in the mindset of the people and fixed prayers during the day, not for eating and drinking and going to parties. That's just not what you did. So Jesus responds to them in the midst of their confusion. Some confused, some highly critical. Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. So can you imagine like, how crazy it would be that at 
such a singular joyful celebration as a wedding that the guests would fast. How incongruous that would be. And to make it even worse or more striking here, the phrase wedding guests, I think, is, is, well, is literally the sons of the wedding hall, which I think the point is to refer to them as the groomsmen, the attendants to the bridegroom at the wedding, his closest friends who are standing with him at this big day in his life. I mean, it'd be so inappropriate, even absurd and impossible for the bridegroom's closest friends to be expressing grief and lament at mourning at his wedding instead of expressing joy and delight and happiness and celebration at this event so significant, his big festive day. I mean, what an illustration. Imagine, your, remember your own weddings. You have been married, and what a joy and delight. Imagine the wedding scenes that we have witnessed and how absurd it would have been, how out of place. And so just note here that Jesus describes the disciples this way. I just imagine being a disciple and hearing him say that, you know? That you are a close friend, that you would, you would stand with me at my wedding. John 15, 15 says, I've called you friends. He says that to you. Well, even more as beautiful as that is, Jesus describes himself as the bridegroom coming for his bride. That's how the story of redemption is depicted. So all that atmosphere, emotion around that, it's in that story of redemption. The the Bible begins with a wedding and ends with a wedding. The goal of the cross is the great wedding feast. He brings with him joy, like the joy of a wedding celebration. And there's this rich Old Testament imagery for this. We can go through a number of passages, but the one I wanted to pick was Isaiah 54. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says the Lord your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but in everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. And that's how redemption is viewed. God's judgment on his people was like exile, was like a divorce, but his coming back to them and restoring them to the promised land and to himself was like a remarriage and everlasting love. That's how he described it to them. And Jesus is saying, I've come in fulfillment of that. I'm bringing in this wonderful time. I mean, prior to this, everyone ached for it, thus fasting. Now the time of the end has approached. We're in it, we're here. So this sort of fasting is not appropriate. 
The time of deliverance they fasted for is here and joy is walking among them. And yet immediately Jesus then says, there's an already and a not yet to this celebration. There's some ominous words he speaks about because he says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. And so Jesus envisions this traumatic interruption as if you're in a full-on wedding celebration and someone comes in and comes after the groom. What that would be like. Wrenches him from his festive day. It's an unnatural removal from the festivities. It's Jesus' first mention of his violent death. He may be alluding to Isaiah 53, 8 with that taken away idea. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Jesus is saying, I'm I'm removed forcibly, tortured and killed on the cross. That's what he's beginning to speak about right in the midst of the wedding celebration. And at that point when he is removed and taken away and killed, his groomsmen, his disciples, his close friends are gonna fast and mourn and grieve with sadness for losing him. That's the emphasis here. It's those three days of grief and mourning when it seemed that all was lost and the world just got turned upside down and all the hopes are dashed. All your expectations that you hoped the Redeemer had come was over. And he says those days in particular, they will fast in mourning and grief and lament. Those days are short, and therefore that kind of fast is short because resurrection morning comes. And he rises glorious from among the dead ones, and he conquers hell, death, and sin, and is enthroned on high. And such that Jesus' last words in the gospel aren't mourning, it's that, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And so we see the Christian life Amidst all the difficulties of the Christian life, the Christian life, because of that, is not marked by sadness and mourning. It's identified with gladness and joy that wraps it all up. And so then Jesus gives three illustrations to to further explain the significance of his person and the uniqueness of the time that he brings in and how it's related to the time prior to his coming. He's trying to press it a little more. And so first he says, no one, it just wouldn't make sense, no one tears nice new clothes to get a piece to patch up old frayed clothes. If you do that, you ruin the new clothes and you don't fix the old, for it doesn't match. I mean, you just ruined everything. And I know some of you that lived through the 70s, might have placed new patches with funny designs on old clothing, but the Jews weren't into that. And this would not have been something they would do. Clothes are expensive. It's absurd in the way Jesus uses this. You destroy the new and don't repair the old. 
And so what's his point? I mean, we could spend a lot of time meditating on this, but he's saying you can't take parts of me and the time I bring in and try to fit them onto or just touch up your old way of doing religion. You can't do it. You can't use me as a patch to cover the holes of Judaism. He's not undermining the Old Testament. Luke always shows Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament. He's saying the only way to rightly understand the Old Testament is to view it through me. It speaks of me. It's Christ-centered. He's challenging pretty strongly the common Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament, like that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Once again, Jesus saying, my whole approach, and rightly understood the approach of the Old Testament, is distinct from yours. Case in point, the feast at Levi's house. I don't deal with sinners by staying away from them, separating from them, but by showing them love, moving toward them in hospitality. What I prove is that God is full of grace whose heart is to go after sinners. You missed this in your reading of the Old Testament. I'm here to show you that's the heart of it. Second, Jesus says, no one, it just doesn't make sense. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If you do that, the new wine will burst the old wineskins, spilling the wine and destroying the skins. So as you know, new wine ferments and then expands. Old wineskins have already been stretched. They're not elastic anymore. They can't go any further. So you put new wine in an old wineskin, it bursts the seams and you lose the skins and you lose the wine. It's just a disaster. So what's Jesus's point? It's basically the same as the first. He's looking at them again and just saying, you can't fit me into your old way of understanding the Old Testament, doing religion. You can't focus on fixed prayers and regular fasts and tithing and circumcision and Sabbath observance to define who you are, to govern how you approach God and to separate you from sinners. They may be useful, but that's not what defines you. I'm showing you how you should interpret the Old Testament. Because of me, your life and ministry is marked and defined by love and grace and gratitude. And sometimes it gets a little confusing when you go to Levi's house and have a big party. But grace does that, it overflows to people. Sinners that we move towards, Jesus is saying. Third, Jesus says, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Kind of shifts the theme here. So Luke's the only evangelist that uses this common proverb. It's a pointed rebuke to the Pharisees and the descri- to their scribes and also to much of Judaism of the day. And so the point is that old wine tastes better than new, doesn't it? Yes. Tastes better than new. But Jesus identifies himself with new wine here. So therefore he's saying, I I see that you're going to see me as inferior to your old way of doing things. You're, You're going to prefer the old ways to who I am, what I bring. You're going to reject me in favor of the old. The old's gonna taste better to you. That's a disturbing statement. And so once again, he's alluding to the cross. 
He's saying, you're gonna kill me. And the reason you're gonna kill me is because you want your way of doing religion. It tastes better to you. It's more comfortable to you. I'm gonna unsettle that for you. And because of that, you're actually gonna surrender me to the Romans, torture me, and kill me at the cross. You're gonna erase me. That's what you're gonna want. You see, it's hard to be respectable and religious and to see your own sin. Jesus comes to lay down his life for his bride. That's Ephesians 5. And what that means for each of us here, Jesus' presence and mission means we're more wickedly sinful and desperately needy than we ever thought, like ever thought. We think we know it, but we don't know the nth part of it. It took none other than him, such a groom coming after such a wayward bride. And it's all of us, like it's the elder respectable brother and it's the younger prodigal brother. We reject God for being good or by being good and we reject him by being bad. We have a host of ways, our arsenal is infinite. Because the default position of the human heart is to want to do it on our own, to compare ourselves to others, to leverage ourselves with God, to be our own bosses and our own saviors and find our own satisfaction. That's just what fallen man is like. And we do it in different ways. And that tastes better to us, naturally. You know it does, it does to me. It tastes better to us. Until we taste and see the Lord is good. We could miss joy because we don't want his charity because that's what the sinful heart does. We could be a C.S. Lewis and say, I don't want any interference. I can do it on my own. I don't want any outsider telling me what to do or giving me what I don't have. And it's a huge warning to us. Huge warning, don't miss joy. And, And to go along with this, this is these three illustrations are analogous to the new birth. When God takes that stony heart and gives you a heart of flesh, when you hear the gospel and you repent and believe, the new birth isn't just tweaking and repairing the fissures in your life and and giving you some better habits. It's a total new life, a new heart, a new disposition. See, the Christian life isn't a patch to fix our problems. And you and I want to keep our life intact. We want to keep our same framework and add some helpful habits. But 2 Corinthians says the old is gone, the new has come. That's the Christian life. Jesus has moved in on you. He's not just doctoring up certain rooms in your house. It's an overhaul. So when we hear the gospel and the spirit moves in us and gives us a new heart to believe, he comes in and says, I am the Lord. And everything's different from now on. And, and, it, and it's not gonna be easy, but that's joy. And so Lewis is wonderful. One of my favorite illustrations, real quick. He pairs us to a house. And uh, he goes, imagine yourself, imagine you, you're a house. You folks that love to repair your houses, fix up your houses. God comes in to rebuild your house. First, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks and the roof and so on. You knew those jobs need to be done and you aren't surprised. 
But presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense whatsoever. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house than the one you thought of. Running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were going to make it into a decent little safe cottage, but he's building a palace. He comes and intends to come to live in it himself. And that's what he's doing with us. It's, it's totally different. And we don't want to settle with the old and patching up the old. We want the new. We want him to move in, restructure our life, reshape our heart. Let us live for joy. Because where we're going is the finale. When he's preparing us for this ringing, beautiful announcement in that final day, when this host of angels looks at you and he says, hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. And let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear, which is the righteous deeds of the saints. And that's what you're brought into and embraced by. And that's the goal of your life. And you're prepared for it right now as we enter into joy. And God's people said, amen.